So we are, uh, maybe today's your first time with us, and we're glad you're here. We're in the middle of this series we've been in called uh, Not Omatic. And if you have missed uh, the last couple weeks, I'd encourage you to go online, watch, listen, and kind of hear what God's been speaking to all of us uh, so far. Uh, but uh, what, what we've been looking at is this, uh, we've been ta- having this context, and the context is we've picking the story up really right after Easter. And Jesus had showed up on the planet, and he announced that he was establishing this brand new kind of relationship with, between God and man. But the problem was he was then crucified. And he was crucified, and so those original followers of Jesus, they thought it was game over because they thought, well, this guy who said he was the Son of Man, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior, you know, the Messiah can't be crucified, they thought. And so they thought everything was over. And so when Jesus died, everything died with him. But then he rose from the dead. Easter happened. And that punctuated everything he taught, and it validated everything he claimed about himself. When, so when Jesus rose from the dead, he spent some time with his followers again, and then he said to them in Matthew chapter 28, verse 20, he said, I want you to go into all the world, and I want you to teach people to observe or to obey or to do what I have taught you and what I have commanded you. And then Jesus went back up to heaven. And so those first believers, those first Jesus followers, they zeroed in on what Jesus taught and what Jesus said and what Jesus asked. Remember, back then, right then, they didn't have the New Testament yet. It's not going to be written for quite a while. They didn't, Acts chapter 15 told us that anybody who became a Jesus follower, you know, who was a Gentile, which is pretty much all of us, we didn't have to follow the the 600 Old Testament laws found, you know, in the Old Testament, and we didn't have to become Jewish. And so what they had to cling to was what Jesus taught, what Jesus said, what Jesus asked of them, what Jesus commanded them. And these early believers, that's what they did. They focused on what Jesus taught. And within the teachings of Jesus, he gave us a few not teachings. He gave us a few not commands. He said, do not, do not, do not, do not. And then he would tell us what they were. And he said this because it's our tendency, you know, to do these things. In other words, these not commands were anything but automatic pre-resurrection. But after the resurrection, after these believers, they saw Jesus alive, after they were filled with the Holy Spirit, they were able to then make these not commands automatic in their life. And because these not commands became automatic in their life, the church exploded, and it eventually changed the world. And even as modern historians say, they became a force to be reckoned with. Now today's not is a big, big one. It's definitely one where you're going to think, Chris, There's just no way. That's just impossible. So I already know that's where we're going to be headed, but I think when we get to go through the story, it'll help set it up a little better and it'll make more sense of it. What I want to do today is tell you where this not story comes from. First thing you need to understand is as we get ready to dive into the story, it's a super, super emotional story. Okay, it's emotional between Jesus and the person. It's emotional between Jesus and the people. It's emotional between Jesus and this certain group of people. And so to help us really hopefully kind of glean into that emotion a little bit, I want to explain to you and show you where this story takes place. Because understanding the context will actually, I think, help the story come alive a little more and help us understand what it's all about. So let me explain where it starts. The story takes place on what we call in modern times the Temple Mount. 
And the Temple Mount in Jesus' day was where the Jewish temple stood. So this would be just kind of a picture of the Temple Mount area, okay, in Jesus' time. And this, this is really big, doesn't look like it. This is about 30 acres, okay? Huge, huge site, and there in the middle, you know, is the, the, the Holy Temple there in the middle. So we'll, we'll come back to that in the middle. But that's like what it looked like approximately during Jesus' time. Today, this same area that we call the Temple Mount is, is, has Muslim structures on it. It has the Dome of the Rock, it has the Dome of the Chain, and the Al-Aska Mosque. So today, here's what it looks like. If you kind of notice, there's, there's a wall all around the 30-acre area, and you, the giant dome, of course, the Dome of the Rock there on the bottom there, that's the Al-Aska Al- Mosque. All those trees you see clustered, those are all part of that Temple Mount area. And so today that Temple Mount is actually a Muslim holy site. The Muslims gather on top of the site, they get a worship there, but that same site is still a Jewish holy site, but the Jews can't go up on the Temple Mount. The Jews today don't, aren't allowed to. There are lots of reasons why. We're not going to go into the history. It's fascinating if you ever want to kind of read into it. But they're not allowed to go up there. So they want to try to get as close as they can as possible to what, where the temple used to be. And in, their moder- in the modern day, the closest spot that they can get to, um, that, that's, the, that's the wall of the temple, is what we call the Western Wall or what some people call the Wailing Wall. And so you see a picture here of the Wailing Wall, the Western Wall. This is a portion of the wall that's closest to where they believe the temple of God used to be in the first century. You can see kind of up on the Temple Mount, you obviously see the Dome of the Rock area there. And so uh, go one more slide, just get a different angle. And so the Jewish people, uh, they gather there every day, and, 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 and we can go there as well, and they gather there, and they pray there, and they say their prayers, and they put their little prayers in between the rocks. Uh, and, and they're praying for the day that they can, of course, one day go up on the Temple Mount again. So you can imagine this Temple Mount, this 30-acre site, is the most contentious piece of real estate in all of the world today. Lots of history. But in Jesus' time, it was the epicenter of God's activity and God's presence because that's where the Holy Temple stood. Because you've got to remember, the, the, the Islamic uh, religion did not exist then. It didn't come along for another 600 years. And so within this Temple Mount area, you would have, you know, the temple, uh, the temple right there that's in gold. And you would see that right there. Within, the temp- in the, within that is what was called the Holy of Holies. And within the Holy of Holies, you had what was, you know, the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Covenant where, you, where it housed the Ten Commandments. But I want to describe it to you again and kind of give you the whole picture so we can understand this and set the stage. The largest area, you probably can't read the words, but it says Gentiles' Courtyard or the Court of the Gentiles. And so that would be the area that, you know, most of us in here are Gentiles, which means non-Jews. That would be the area that we were all allowed to go. We could get close to God's temple, but you had to be Jewish to go any further. And to go any further, you would then go up those steps into that that area in the middle. And the first area you would come to was called the Court of the Women. The Court of the Women. Here's kind of a a model of what it would have looked like. 
And if you notice, uh, there's little people in there just to give you a size of the scale of it. Thousands and thousands could fit in there. And that, temp, that court of the women area on the bottom of the picture, only women couldn't go further than that. And then you would s- go up those stairs into the next area, and the next area is where the altar was. And that's where they would sacrifice, that make the sacrifices for their sin. There's a depiction on the right. You have to go up those steps and where you would enter into the Holy of Holies. So it's the holiest site in all of Judaism. This is where God resided, so to speak. And this place, uh, let's go back out to the big picture. Uh, This place, here's another great picture of it. This place is where our story takes place today. Now, now let me tell you another cool part about all of this story here. So this is this 30-acre uh, Temple Mount area. See in the bottom right, you'll see those, uh, those steps. Those steps are referred to as the southern steps where they entered into those doorways or those gateways right there, which would then take you through the building and up onto the uh, court of the Gentiles. Those southern steps were very important. That's how you got in. And so let me give you kind of a couple pictures from the modern day here. Here's those temple steps today. Um, one more picture here. This next picture here is our group when we, were went, when we were in Israel a few years ago. And the steps, actually very interesting about them, they were spaced apart a little larger than would be normal for an average step of a, of a human being. And they did that on purpose. They didn't want you to just kind of get up it real quick. It like, it, it, it like you really had to like be purposeful, intentional, and it was extremely steep to get up those steps because you were going somewhere special. This was significant, these steps. And go back out now. You see where those steps are. This, these steps are significant because this was the pathway to atonement. This was, in essence... The stairway to heaven, if you will. This was their stairway to reconciliation and forgiveness with God. So week after week, month after month, year after year, the Jewish people, they would climb these stairs and enter into the tabernacle with their sacrifices. They were bringing, I want you to picture this, it's very important to set this up this morning. They were bringing their sin with them. And they would go up the steps, through the court of the Gentiles, through the court of the women, into the altar. They would leave their sin at the altar. Then they would go back out, and they would go down these steps, free. Free of guilt. Free of shame. Forgiven. With their relationship with God restored. So you got the picture a little bit? This is the epicenter of God's activity, the epicenter of holiness. It's where God resides. It's where your sins are forgiven. It's the most important place for a Jewish person. We got it? Are we good? We good? We kind of got it a little bit, some of us? All right, let's let's get into the story. John chapter 8. John chapter 8. We're going to start in verse 2. John chapter 8, verse 2. And again, I'll be reading from the New American Standard this morning. It says this, early in the morning, I'm going to come back to that in a moment. Early in the morning, Jesus came again. See, this was his habit to do this. He came again into the temple, which means he probably climbed those southern steps 
into the court of the Gentiles, possibly beyond. And notice what it says. And all the people were coming to him, and he sat down and he began to teach them. See, everywhere Jesus went, crowds followed Jesus. And you can imagine when Jesus, who, you know, he's made claims to be God. Can you imagine him going to the temple? I mean, this is like, if you're going to follow Jesus, if you're going to go to like a Jesus concert, this is the one you want to choose to go to. This is the place to go to. And so Jesus is there, and the the people are gathered around him. Look at verse 3, John 8. The scribes and the Pharisees, those are the religious leaders, they brought a woman caught in adultery, and having sat her in the center of the court, see this court we're talking about, they said to him, now I want you to pause. Remember, verse 2 said, very early in the morning. You and I need to ask the question, where were the scribes and the Pharisee and the woman all night long? Why wait till the morning? And the reason is this issue that we're going to talk about had nothing to do with the woman. This was all about an opportunity for them to trap Jesus. So they kept this woman all night long somewhere. And when they heard Jesus is now in the temple and a crowd is gathered and he has sat down. And so he's in a he's in a specific spot. He's not going to move anytime soon. They're like, all right, now it's our chance to execute our plan. It makes me even wonder how long have they they have this woman. Was it that night? Was it days? I mean, have they been they've been waiting for an opportunity? So you picture these religious leaders, right? They now know Jesus is in the temple. He sat down. People have his, you know, people are there. They've wanted to do this when Jesus is at the temple. And now they drag this woman up the stairs into the court of the Gentiles, into the center of the court. And you can imagine the crowd they gathered. Because could you imagine your pastor grabbing one of you, walking, you know, through the streets and coming to church? You know, people are going to follow, right? What's going on here? What's happening? And so people are watching. And so you had the Jesus crowd. You now have the religious leaders group crowd following them. Hopefully you're kind of catching the picture here a little bit going to be a public spectacle that we're going to have here and they wanted it on purpose because they had an agenda and their agenda wasn't the welfare of this woman look at verse four teacher this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act as in remember exodus chapter 20 verse 14 thou shalt not commit adultery in other words this isn't some peripheral law This isn't like, you know, law number 604, you know, of the Jewish commands. This is like one of the top what? One of the top what? This is one of the top ten, right? This is is in the top ten. So you got to picture this. You have this crowd around Jesus and this nether crowd that came with the Pharisees. And they're, you know, they've been walking and, and, and showing up and they drag her up the stairs and all these people are curious. And they're all there. Now, by the way, this is the last place in the world that this woman would have wanted to be. This temple, you know, it really was a monument to her shame, to her guilt. This temple is probably somewhere she hasn't been in a while. It's possible this is the first time she's been there in a long time. Perhaps she's been in denial about her sin. I think that happens to a lot of us, doesn't it? We don't want to think about it. We don't want to dwell on it. We just kind of continue in it. 
And oftentimes when that's the case, we avoid God or what we perceive to be related to God, which is God's people, God's house, things like that. But she can't avoid it any longer because now she's there. She's in that spot, in that place, and she's being now confronted with her sin. Perhaps she, fa- she turns her back away from the Holy of Holies in shame and guilt. Can you feel the drama a little bit? I, I can. They go on to say to Jesus, look at verse 5. Now, in the law, which, by the way, Jesus is illustrated right next to us. It's standing right there, the law. If you want, we can go into the Holy of Holies, pull out the Ten Commandments, right? I mean, in the law, see, they had a plan. They wanted to trap Jesus. Now, in the law, Moses, and Moses is like the guy, right? He's the ultimate authority. Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? You got it? Do you see what's happening here? I mean, it would have been completely silent. You could have heard a pin drop at this moment. And Jesus could have certainly said, well, then why'd you drag her all the way up here if you're so sure of her guilt? Why did you bring her here? If you already know what Moses says, why didn't you stone her already? He could have said all that. If Jesus has a little bit of the sense of humor that I think some of us have, he might have said, hey, let's turn to Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10. Because what it actually says, you brought me this woman, but what it actually says is, if a man commits adultery, uh, who's missing here? Where's the dude? They were... But, and it goes on to say, if a man commits adultery with another man's wife, both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. John 8, 6. They were saying this, testing him, so they might have grounds for accusing him. See, their goal, the religious leaders, they were always trying to divide Jesus and the people to cause division. They were trying to marginalize Jesus and his influence because he was starting to have more influence over the people than they were. And now they have a crowd, and they're in a perfect spot, and it's a perfect opportunity to segregate Jesus from the people. Because if Jesus sides, because they they just quoted the law, they just quoted Moses, they just quoted, you know, what's in the temple. If Jesus decides against Moses, if Jesus sides against the law, against the temple, then he's going to lose popularity with the people. It was a brilliant move from their perspective. Why? Because they've set it up to be. They've set it up to be public. They set it up to be Jesus versus Moses. Jesus versus the temple. Jesus versus the Holy of Holies. Jesus versus their entire testament, what we call the Old Testament. So Jesus, here's what they're saying. So you think you're greater than Moses? Think you're greater than the law? You think you're greater than the authority of the temple? I don't know if I've done it justice, but I hope you can sense and feel a little bit the tension and the drama of this moment. It was thick with emotion. And these religious leaders, all they were trying to do is use this woman as a means to an end. They didn't care about her. They didn't care about her welfare. They didn't even care about her guilt. They were just trying to trap 
Jesus and turn the crowd against him. Verse 6. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. Verse 7. But when they persisted, in other words, Jesus, you've got to answer us. You can't just ignore us and start just drawing stuff. And I imagine the longer Jesus took as they were persisting, they're thinking to themselves, this is a good sign. The longer he waits to come up with an answer means he's trying to figure out an answer. He doesn't have an answer. So they're probably thinking in their mind, we got him. We got him. He's fumbling around. We finally caught him cold, and he's not going to be able to say anything. Let's see what Jesus says, verse 7. When they persisted in asking him, he straightened up, and he said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw the stone at her. Hey, guys, let's not forget where we're standing here. We're standing in the place, the holy of holies, the place where you have come many times to make sacrifice for your own sin. So you who hasn't sinned, why don't you go ahead, that stone you have in your hand that you brought with you, why don't you go ahead and and throw the first stone? And suddenly that piece of real estate Suddenly that spot, that area, that context, that conversation from from their perspective, it just came tumbling down because they're on the spot that's reminiscent, that reminds them of their personal failures. It's a place they've been bringing sacrifices their whole life for their own sin so that they could be reconciled with God. Let's not forget where you're standing is what Jesus was saying. Let's not forget this spot. He who is without the first sin, you go ahead and toss the first stone. Now, one interesting piece of this drama, there was one among them with no sin. He happened to be the only one who didn't have a stone in his hand. Interesting. Verse 8, again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Now, people have wondered and speculated for 2,000 years. What did Jesus write? What did he write on the ground? And and most people, you know, they kind of say, especially later on in the story how it goes, they kind of say, well, you know, he he must have been writing their sins. You know, they're peering over going, oh, wow, you know. And so, again, it's just speculation. But, you know, I did a lot of digging on this. I really did. And and I finally found, we finally found evidence. uh, We found Jesus' original writing of what he wrote there at the Temple Mount, some archaeology. It took me a long time to find this, but I finally found it. Here's what Jesus actually wrote. (laughs) Oh, I just had to have a little fun there. (laughs) All right. All right, well, we don't know what he wrote because we know that would have been the biggest miracle of all. (laughs) Verse 9, when they heard it, when they heard Jesus saying, you know, he who is without sin, you cast the first stone. When the context of the situation finally dawned on them where they were, what they were about to do and how unworthy they actually were to do what they were about to do. 
when they realized how self-righteous they were. And I want you to think about this. If you look through the stories in the Bible, the Gospels, it seems to me that Jesus got most upset and went most ballistic over self-righteousness. Maybe some of you have kind of read the stories, you might agree with me. That's what he went ballistic over. When they heard it, they began to go out. They began to go out. Now, before you knew where this story took place, before you had the visuals I just showed you, that word out, if you would have read it in the NASB, you'd be like, what is that? I don't even understand. What do you mean they, they went out? That sounds weird. Well, wouldn't they, wouldn't they, they would leave. What does that mean, go out? Well, what did they go out of? And what's the answer? What did they go out of? The temple. And how did they do that? They had to go through the, depending on where they were, they had to for sure go through the court of the Gentiles. Go down the stairs. Go down through the gate. And then they go down the southern stairs. They had to go out of the temple. They had to go out of the place that represented the love and the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of God. You went to the temple because you broke the law and you offered your sacrifice for your sin and you went away forgiven. So they walked away. They went out from the love, the grace, the mercy, the forgiveness of God. Why? Because they didn't come there to seek forgiveness for this woman or grace or mercy. They came to judge. They came to condemn. But praise be to God, Jesus comes to forgive. Here's what's interesting. The text tells us that when they went out, they went out in a certain order. Look at verse 9. They began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. In other words, the, one, in other words, the, the ones who had the longest sin list, and that's why people speculate Jesus was writing their sins down, and the lists were super long for the oldest people. The ones who had climbed those southern steps the most to sacrifice for their own sins, they're the ones who went out of the court first. Then verse 9 says, He was left alone and the woman where she was in the center of the court. They're there in that court area. Can you picture it? Can you imagine it? Verse 8, straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, now again, context, you just have to imagine what you know about Jesus. And what I know about Jesus, it's just my image. I don't know what your image is. My image is, I'll bet she has a smirk on his face. There's a little grin on his face. A little smile on his face. And he says, where are they? Where'd they go? What happened to them? Then he asks an important question. Did no one condemn you? Now this question doesn't mean, did no one accuse you? Because clearly they had accused her. The question doesn't mean, are you guilty? Because the answer is, is she guilty? What's the answer, by the way? Do you know what the answer is? Yes, absolutely. She violated, she broke, she disobeyed the command of God. The question really means, is there no one here forcing you to pay for what you've done? Is there no one here holding you accountable to what you've done? Is there no one here condemning you? Verse 11, she said, no one, Lord. And then Jesus said, 
And I suspect some of you might be here today, and this is the reason God brought you here today. I suspect what Jesus said, this is something that every single one of us needs to hear in our lives. Some of us, we've needed to hear this for a long time. Some of us, we're maybe caught in something right now, and you need to hear this from Jesus. Some of us are going to hear this, but we're not going to believe it. And Jesus said to her, I do not condemn you either. I do not condemn you. I will not make you pay for what you've done. You've done. By the way, that's the gospel message right there. I do not condemn you. I will not make you pay. And in, sa- in saying this, Jesus was essentially saying he's greater than Moses, greater than the temple, greater than the, than the law. Later on, in fact, he said it this way. He said, I came to be the, ultimate, I came to be the fulfillment of all of that. And the film, fulfillment wasn't condemnation, by the way, and judgment. The fulfillment was love and grace and mercy and forgiveness. And then he gives her the commandment. Verse 11, look at it. After he said, I'm not here to condemn you, but he does give her a command. He says, go from now on, sin no more. Go, that's an imperative. Go about your life. You're free to go. But from now on, sin no more. Or to use our language in this uh, sermon series, sin not. Leave your life of sin. Today's not commandment, sin not, it's so unrealistic pre-resurrection, pre-crucifixion. But I want you to see us today, we live on the other side of the crucifixion where it becomes something that is absolutely doable by the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And I want you to see this morning the tone that Jesus had that perhaps some of us have yet to figure out. Because in this moment, Jesus shows us his heart. In this moment, Jesus, who is God, shows us the heart of God. And his tone was not one of judgment. It was not one of condemnation, as was the religious, by the way. The religious were all about condemnation, judgment. But the heart of Jesus His tone was all about compassion, and so he urged them. He didn't condemn them. I want to urge you, leave your life of sin. Jesus says, sin not, because Jesus knew something that I think a lot of us have figured out, that every one of our sins, and it's like it comes prepackaged, prepackaged with some type of penalty, doesn't it? Every time we sin, every time we do something that, that, that violates the heart of God, the commands of God, it kills things. Sin over time, it kills our conscience. Sin over, it kills our mind. It kills our body. Of course we know it kills our soul. It kills our self-respect. Sin kills our relationships. It kills our, our most valued relationships, uh, you know, if we're married with our spouse. It kills our relationships with our kids or our aunts, our uncles, our nieces, our nephews, our brothers, our sisters. It kills the relationship between a parent and a child. Sin has the power to kill entire cultures. And so Jesus urges her, sin not. Leave your life of sin. I I don't need to punish you. I I don't need to condemn you. Because the reality is, Your sin has already punished you enough. Your sin has already condemned you enough. She's already suffering the consequences. How many of us have been dragged in public for our sin? Anybody? 
she was. She was already going to face the consequences of her sin and the punishment for her sin. See, you need to understand the message of the temple model. The message of that temple model that they, that, that they went to was when you sin, you break God's law. So you come to the temple and you get right with God. You ask for forgiveness by sacrificing. And you, what you sacrifice is God said, you don't have to sacrifice yourself, you sacrifice an animal. Message of the temple law was you sin, you're breaking the law. What was Jesus' mo- model? When you sin, you break God's heart. Temple motto is you're breaking the law and you got to get right with it. The message of Jesus is when you sin, you break God's heart. And God knows, man, your sin, it's breaking you. God knows that's breaking you. And so God's like, man, I want to urge you, go, but sin no more, sin not. The consequences of your sin, that's the reason Jesus is urging you and I. Get away from your sin. Leave it. Sin not. Sin no more. And not because God's going to get you, but because your sin is killing you. And your sin is killing what's important to you. And I know you're thinking, Chris, that's not easy. And guess what? I agree. Of course it's not. I get it. I totally do. It's far far easier to get entangled than it is to get untangled. And that's why Jesus has given us this message. That's why he's urging us. It's why he's calling out to us and he's saying, hey, I want to encourage you, sin not. Get away from it. It's killing you. It's destroying you. And I suspect that's a tone that you haven't always viewed Jesus and his word. A tone and a heart of love and compassion even as he calls you to something greater because he knows what kills you and destroys you. So I want to ask you a hard question. What's your sin? I'm not going to drag you up here in front of everybody. What's your sin? Why not decide right now, that's it, I'm leaving it, I'm getting away from it, I'm done with it. I'm going to tell the truth, I'm going to get right. I'm not going to keep trusting in myself and my own ways and full of pride. No, I'm going to get away from all that. Listen, your heavenly father who loves you, he's urging you, leave your sin. Why punish yourself any longer? Now, as we close, there's an interesting thing about the temple. If you were to visit today and visit the uh, southern steps, which is there on the bottom, uh, there's the Al-Aska Mosque. And the southern steps, and there's kind of an entrance that doesn't really exist anymore to the mosque, but below all that, to the right is the southern steps. And if you'll notice what's missing, the gate's gone. The doorway's gone. It's all sealed up. I actually think it's kind of a cool physical picture for you and I. It's a cool reminder to let us know that the trek up those steps the trek up those steps and into, a, this into the temple to make our sacrifice, doors closed. Not an option anymore. You can't go sacrifice for your own sins anymore. Why? Because Jesus became the ultimate sacrifice for you and I. And he died on the cross for our sins. The, f- the Bible says the final sin, the final sin sacrifice once and for all for your sins. Jesus paid it all on the cross 
The temple sacrificial system, it's closed up, it's barricaded, it's done. Jesus is your salvation. Jesus is the one who forgives you. And so he's urging you, he's begging you, sin not. Leave your sin. Why punish yourself any longer? Jesus says, I'm not condemning you. Your sin is doing that for you. So just leave it. Sin not. Let's pray. Father, my hope and prayer is that perhaps this morning, God, that's perhaps your your perspective on sin has been kind of been given a, a new light for us. It's not one like the religious leaders who stand there ready to pounce on us and ready to condemn us, and ready to judge us, and ready to go after us, as oftentimes religion is, as oftentimes what our own hearts are as we try to perceive what we think God is. God, help us see today that your message is a message of love and grace and mercy and forgiveness and compassion. And when you call us not to sin, God, you do it because you don't want us to hurt ourselves anymore. You don't want us to be choosing to do things that are destroying us. So God, help us to be reminded of this. God, help us as we leave this place. We've been equipped with the power of the Holy Spirit. We live on this side of the cross. We have resurrection power in our life. We have the spirit of power that lives in us, that teaches us to say no to ungodliness that gives us the, the spirit of power and love and self-control. That's what your word tells us. And so we thank you for that spirit, God. And so, God, we commit to you to sin no more, to sin not. So, God, I pray that each person here would turn to you to draw on your power, to live a life that honors you, that glorifies you. God, one of the ways we do that is right now as we come, as we give an offering to you. And so, God, for those who are prepared to do that today, I pray you would receive this from their hearts. Use this to advance your kingdom. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.